Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer. Buddha at the Gas Pump is an ongoing series of interviews with spiritually awakening people. I believe that today's guest is number 365, which means <laughs> if I had done them every day of the year, we would have done, been doing this for a whole year straight. Today's guest is James Eaton. James is in the UK in a place called Totnes. Is that the way you pronounce it, James? Uh, everyone says Totnes, but apparently it's supposed to be Totnes. Okay, so, Totnes. It almost sounds knows? like it should be in Spain or something. In any case, I would say a couple quick more general things before we get started. I just like to say uh, every time when I do one of these interviews that if you've never seen one of these before, there are, as I just said, a whole bunch of them. And if you go to batgap.com, B-A-T-G-A-P, and look under the past interviews menu, you'll find them all organized and categorized in various ways. So you can check out previous ones. This whole thing is made possible by the support of appreciative viewers and listeners. And if you appreciate it and feel like supporting it, there's a PayPal button on the site. So, let me properly introduce James. So James Eaton lives in the UK. He'll tell us his story about how he... Well, why don't you just start telling it, James? Because your, your little bio that you sent me is so sort of personal and informal that you might as well just tell the story of growing up deep deep sense of dissatisfaction and so on let's just start with yeah, that. yeah i mean it's the it's the classic tale rick you know just having that deep sense of dissatisfaction and i, I mean from an early age i i kind of knew i was playing a game i mean from a very early age i remember always being very driven but looking at the kind of adults around me i'm just wondering why why are you pretending why is everyone <laughs> pretending you know and but you see yeah you know and i got to about nine or ten i was pretending too i i'd sort of gone into the game and somewhere i knew i was pretending but you know you just can't understand what's going on there at such a young age did you have a feeling and, like you were getting sucked into it, like like blinders were being put over your eyes and you were, yeah, you were trying exactly. to prevent that from happening? Absolutely. I just found myself, rather rather than people say as you get older, you know, everything expands and your options open. I was feeling like the opposite was happening. Shutting down. Yeah. yeah. What I was doing, I was, I was starting to play a role, you know, like we all, well, most of us seem to do deep down feeling very insecure and wanting to kind of open up and be fully seen and expressed and you know all those wonderful things but uh, every time that kind of impetus would rise up a kind of shutting down and a fear of of expressing myself mm. and so this kind of inner tensions sort of building up were any adults telling you that you shouldn't be so expressive or that you should, you know, put yourself in a box where you, yeah. you're hearing that kind of advice from people? Not in an explicit way, but I would say in, environment, in my environment, it was implicit. Yeah. And, you know, so my, what I started to do was, was be very clever. You know, that was my way of shielding this kind of inner insecurity. And I, and I, because I'm very driven, I always have been very driven. There's a kind of, there was this willpower sort of pushing, and so that got behind whatever I was doing. So, so I was, I, I did very well in like academic stuff at school, for example. I got into into music, playing guitar. Well, that's an interesting uh, sort of sidetrack there because I, uh, 
I had a, a friend at school and I remember going back to his house and his, his brother was a musician. He came in with an acoustic guitar and he just he kind of sat on the sofa and just started strumming it. And then straight away it was like, you know, you get those moments where something starts jangling. Yeah. You know, it's like, whoa, this but is the coolest is, thing you'd ever seen. Right? Yeah, the coolest thing I've ever heard and ever seen. And, right. and that, that was, uh, it, it was like touching something far beyond this kind of being authentic character I was presenting. So I, I kind of got really into guitar and that, that was kind of like my outlet to find some sanity, I guess. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, but I put my willpower behind that too. So, you know, it was a band and we, we used to play gigs and stuff. Um, so that was, you know, that was me when I, by the time I got to, I guess, 18, you know, I had great results in exams. I got into a top university, you know, it was like from the outside, it was like, yeah, this guy's got it all going on, you know. You went to Oxford and majored in mathematics, it looks like. That's right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right. But, you know, if I'm honest, beneath beneath that surface, it was it was I was a mess. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Very insecure, you know, feeling shameful, guilty. It was like deficient you know, the classic selection of descriptions. You know. But I, so I went to university, I had a good time, I enjoyed it. But by then I, I, I was cottoning on to my game, you know, I thought when I, when I left, it was like, well, what do I do now? Do I carry on playing my game? And now I just carry on in, you know, as in a career and all the rest of it, but just carry on the same pretense that I was putting up or do I say well hold on a second you know I'm gonna look into this mm -hmm. you got into and, well are we skipping you, you got into being an actor and a school teacher or are we or yeah yeah so that came a bit come. later so yeah. I, I um basically when I when I left Oxford I I basically went on the dole where in England that that means you, you sign on you you're not working oh you're like a income support you yeah know. you're a, f a no good freeloader yeah yeah well it, it, yeah exactly <laughs> there's a there's a cockney rhyming slang for it. it's called the rock and roll uh -huh. like the, the doll the uh, rock and roll right. and i literally was on the rock and roll because <laughs> basically me and a group of friends we were basically uh, had a band and we were we were trying to get a record deal and do that whole thing so that's yeah that's where i found myself and I did that for a few years, really putting the willpower behind it. Um, and we had a certain amount of success, but it didn't go big style, you know. And I, like a lot of these things, if they don't progress, everything starts to kind of implode. Yeah. So that, that kind of fell apart. And um, I was living in Oxford at the time. So then I, I moved after that to London. Mm -hmm. And it was just this kind of... Um, bit lost really just working in bars and you know going out partying experimenting with life in all forms yeah in other bands and you know just just kind of yeah floating and then I that's when I decided to go to drama school I basically Rick I was going through my list you right. know I was going through my my list like what what is gonna solve this whatever it is how am I going to get get through this? Meanwhile, no so, inkling that spirituality might be a, a no, not a, at this point, none, no. none at all, none at all. Like my only, uh, my only 
meeting with spirituality was my mum's Christian, so I went to you know Sunday yeah. Sunday school, and like many people, like the way it's presented, it's just like another load of beliefs to take on, and right. and the, the, the kind of real beauty in it was completely lost on me, and it was just another no thank you, you know. <laughs> yeah, really. I mean, although I, I would say, I mean, all throughout my life, I've always had this sense of something much, much greater, like many of us do, but just no way of kind of understanding it. Yeah, you didn't know what it was. You just... There was just nothing and no one and nothing around me to just kind of pick up on that glint in the eye, mm. you know, and just go, oh, James, come, maybe read this or, or look yeah. at this or, you know, just none of that really. So, yeah, I was just left to my own devices. So, yeah, so I did the rock and roll thing, you know, then that didn't work. Just, know, just out of curiosity for sort of kind of an irrelevant question, but what was the, what sort of rock were you doing? Were you like heavy metal or were you more like no, no, folksy, no, was, bluesy kind of? Yeah, melodic, yeah, you know. Harmonies. Sort of melodic rock. Yeah, harmonies. Good. Beatlesy sort of. That kind of stuff. You know, yeah. Nice crafted songs yeah. and harmonies and yeah. Stuff I would have there appreciated. Was, this, yeah, it was around, the, I don't know if you remember, this was, must have been in the, the 90s, I guess. Yeah, 90s. So we we had this whole thing in in the UK called Britpop. No, I wasn't really. It was bands like Blur and Oasis and, and Suede and all these. You got to go, You got to move back about three decades before I can really talk to you about. <laughs> <laughs> you know the Beatles, the Who. Yeah, kind of, well, yeah, well, those I kind can of groups. That stuff too. Yeah. 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 So it was that kind of music. Um, yeah. So that you know that that didn't provide the satisfaction I was looking for basically ultimately and so my, like my next on my list was something I always sort of wondered about was acting mm -hmm. so I, I uh, having no experience at all I did a little bit when I actually I did do a, a music I was in a musical when I was at Oxford mm -hmm. West Side Story actually oh was it oh cool I was I was Riff ah he was the shark yeah. or Jet he was a jet. Okay. When you're a jet, you're right. a jet all the way. All that stuff. Yeah. You know uh, who happens to live in Fairfield, who's a, a friend of mine, is Richard Beamer, who played Tony in uh, the movie. Tony. Okay. Yeah, he, he's an old-time meditator and lives here in, in Iowa in our town. Right. Yeah, it's a great movie. I yeah, love that. Yeah. My favorite musical, definitely. Uh, yeah, so I, so I, uh, I auditioned and I'm... Uh, a place called Lambda, London Academy of Music and Dramatic Art, and uh, was offered a place on their course. So I went and did that. And actually, that was that was the beginning, I think, of this this journey. And it's interesting because I think drama traditionally was all about self knowledge. And to be a good actor, you have to be able to be vulnerable, you know, in the moment not planning everything and gripping on to your your kind of conclusions that you've already made so you know I, in a way I was hopeless <laughs> which was great because it, it kind of smashed me to pieces it was like my, my attempt to present myself was being severely undermined and you know by this time I was about 25 I think so there were other 
people there that were a lot younger, like 19, 20, 21, you know, and they didn't have such a hang up. So they were like really flying. And it was like suddenly uh, from used to being sort of top of the class, I was bottom, you know, yeah, the old fogey. <laughs> yeah, old fogey, but also really stuck in my ways, you know. So that was a really great sort of introduction into sort of looking inward in a sense and, and seeing well, why am I being like this and starting to open, starting to be more vulnerable in the moment, not having to fix everything. And also, you know, the feeling, the kind of uh, feelings of fear when they come up and not not being kind of overridden by that, not being not shutting down when those feelings are coming up, but actually sort of meeting it and really expanding into it. So, so they, I mean, these are invaluable things. I may think everyone would really benefit actually from like at least a year at drama school. Mm. I know really, well, very challenging. Well, it, must, it must actually loosen you up a lot. I mean, cause you have to, yeah. I know that you do all sorts of exercises to get out of your mold, you know, to get out of your set way of, of functioning and, and to try on yeah. different personalities. So it must, it must culture some kind of flexibility. I think so. Yeah. I mean, improvising, for yeah. example, you know, so I mean, for most people, that's just terrifying. You're standing in front of a group of people with no idea, you know, you're just saying yes, saying yes to whatever's happening. Yeah, so that was a really sort of mind opening experience for me. And then when I left drama school, I actually was was in the business for a few years. And it was, you know, it, it was great, actually, because I have musical skills as well. That means I was sort of more employable. Uh, I used to do sort of rep work where you'd have a few plays and a musical. So if someone can play drums, guitar, sing, you know, you, you can kind of save yourself two people. We can get two for the price of one for the price of two, two for the price of one, certainly not one for the price of two. <laughs> yeah. So that was, that was great. But I know I used to love the, the kind of, heightened nature of it you know going on stage big audiences but after a while i just this this same kind of feeling no this isn't it you know mm. this is great but it's not it and whenever that used to come i used to used to move on very quickly you know i, I wouldn't hang around like relationships you know some people get a sense that it's over and then it can take a sort of year or two to kind of fully admit that and move on but i've always been very soon as I know I know mm. and then it's like well there's there's no point in staying in this anymore we're just wasting each other's time so so my my kind of affair with the acting world sort of came to an end and then I just thought well what else what, what am I going to do now you know and then last thing on my list was oh well, I'll just teach I'll be a teacher a school teacher so I, I retrained and then I went and worked in a inner city London school, so it's a very challenging school. And I was teaching maths. So I went back to that, which is, you know, such a weird juxtaposition. You know, we've got drama, <laughs> which is all about, you know, not knowing, freedom in the moment, vulnerability, and this sort of maths, which is this this kind of logical structure, you know, that's kind of solid like a rock, you know. Yeah. Um well, it's good you're exercising different faculties, you know. Certainly was, yeah. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, that was really great. I enjoyed that. I love the kids, the energy of the kids, that kind of vitality, you know. 
Um, and I actually enjoyed sort of presenting maths in a way that I felt they could really connect with because I think so many people have such bad experience of maths, you know, when they're at school. And, you know, when people, I always hear it when people, when I was young, when I used to say, oh, yeah, I'm doing a maths degree, they just go like, Aah! you know, it's like, <laughs> like I'd said a bad word, you know, it's, because most people's experience is very bad because, I mean, think about maths, what you could do, is, let's take something really simple, I don't know, like, um, say, doing circles, you know, like, circumferences, pi times diameter so the teacher comes in and they just write that on the board and they just chuck out the textbooks and they go right do some problems and it's like well who's learning anything there it's just feels like a complete waste of time so i used to try and do things like um if all the kids come in with tins and stuff circular objects draw around them and then you have a bit of string and they kind of go around the circle with the string measure it mm -hmm then measure the diameter of that and you have a table on the board or something and everyone just fills in their values you know and then you get them well you might just sort of whisper to one kid you know don't, don't not not announcing it just but whisper why don't you divide them see what see what you get you know so they divide it and they get this number three point something and they do it what about that one and do it again and then suddenly you just as a teacher you just stand back and you watch this kind of like wave going through the class oh. as they start realizing they're getting the same number That's over cool. and over again no matter yeah. what size the circle is it's the same number and it's like what the hell's going on <laughs> and then you get one of the kids to go up and like google it you know three point whatever what is this number and then it's pi. this pi symbol comes up on the screen you know That's neat. and then this one's like whoa <laughs> It's like they're touching into something mysterious, you know. Well, it's yeah. even called a tran transcendental number, isn't it? So. Yeah, you know, and while we're on that point, um, I know that some mathematicians and others have marveled at the fact that the universe somehow is mathematical, that, that, um, mathemat that we even understand mathematical laws and that they correlate with things in the physical universe. Have you ever thought about that? I mean, does it ever sort of evoke a sense of awe and wonder in you or some sense of divine intelligence that's, that's orchestrating things and that has given this, this language that enables us to understand the universe from a certain angle? Yeah, I mean, that, that's, I mean we can get onto this as we go through. I mean, that's, that's a way of looking at it. Yeah. Um, and it, it certainly strikes you when you're teaching this stuff. Think, you know, ratios like the golden ratio and... Um, you know, spirals, how spirals come out of that, and then you see it in sunflower patterns. And, yeah, and seashells yeah, so, and galaxies. And, yeah, exactly. It's, yeah. it's really fascinating. Even in the helixical structure of the DNA, right, there's a, right. kind of, a, a ratio of and the golden ratio in that. Mm -hmm. Even if you measure your, you know, your digits, your fingers and your, your arms, you can, you can get a ratio there. In fact, we used to do this. I used to do a little lesson like that, and I had... Um, on the internet you can find this like face made out of golden ratios oh. and then you can you can you can put different famous faces behind it to see how they, how they match, match up, up or mm. not mm. as the case may be and there is a strange kind of beauty when you, there was a russian model and her face almost matched it perfectly and you look at the face and it wasn't like a sexy face or a, it was just there was something really sort of beautifully pure about it mm. that was very 
yeah, it was really something. So, yeah, I mean, it, it certainly can inspire that awe and wonder. And I certainly saw that in the kids. And I had it myself a bit when I was particularly uh, A-level maths. I think university it got so conceptual that, I mean, I, I, I realised at university I, I wasn't really a mathematician, you know. <laughs> You know what I mean? Like, especially yeah. there where I went, you start to meet people who really are geniuses, you know, and you're OK. All right. <laughs> OK. You know, I'm, I just I can I can get this stuff, but I'm not, not on that level. Of, you know? Not one of those. Right. Both in terms I mean, of the genius and perhaps in terms of the nerd value. Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I met Brian Josephson one time, the physicist and, you know, such a genius. He got the Nobel Prize. And he was such an odd character, you know, just so eccentric, <laughs> just kind right. of caught up in this world in his mind. Yeah, amazing, yeah. yeah. Certainly it was a few like that where, when I went to Oxford, definitely. <laughs> so in the end, I, the maths, the teaching thing, you know, the same thing happened. I just, I did it for three years and it is very exhausting as well. I mean, I, I take my hat off to teachers out there you know absolutely total respect you know because the energy that it sucks out of you especially in those inner city schools you mm. know every second of the day you're, you're kind of on something you know you're like you it's just exhausting yeah just want to throw in here that there's some nice programs where they're teaching meditation to inner city school kids and getting incredible results you know just ah. huge reductions in, in, you know, violence and misbehavior mm -hmm. things and, yeah. and dropouts and much better yeah. grades and all kinds of stuff. So and it must be a lot easier on the teachers, too. Yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, I, I used to find getting kids respect was was the best way of controlling classes rather than, you know, the, these screaming teachers at the front of the class yeah. it just doesn't doesn't especially in inner city schools because right. they, they'll scream back at you, you know, yeah. <laughs> it's like, no problem. So, yeah, I mean, actually, there's a great Chinese proverb. It's something like, um, tell me and I'll forget. Uh, show me and I may remember. Involve me and I will always understand. That's good. So that, yeah, exactly. So that, I mean, that that goes for the subject we're talking about in terms of the sort of spiritual search as well, mm -hmm. for me. It's too much telling and too much kind of, you know, taking it on the word of the teacher and not enough involving, you know. Yeah, a lot of times there's there's a very rigid hierarchy with the teacher up on a podium and uh, everybody else sort of, I'll never be like him, you know. And Yeah, there can be that. A, n a number of teachers who are, are trying to get around that now and make it much more egalitarian. Yeah, exactly, yeah. 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 So, I mean, that's basically what I was trying to do in the math teaching. I just, I'll just tell you one very quick thing. Sure. It was so beautiful. I was doing Pythagoras theorem with a class once and I, and I did a similar lesson where they, they would have squares that they fit together. And when the, when the certain squares would fit together, you get a right angle triangle. So this, this kid in the class, he worked it out and he, you know, I said, oh, great. I think his name was Juha. So we called it Juha's theorem, and he was so excited. He said, "Yeah, mate, I, I got a theorem, you know." <laughs> and then we again we looked it up on Google, and uh, 
and then it came up. Oh, Pythagoras's theorem. Oh, so he got he got really disappointed. He said, he, "Oh, he got there before me." He was really disappointed. <laughs> and then this is the this is the best. I heard this kid at the back of class go, "Pythagoras," but he was bullied at school. <laughs> That's great. Because he, you know, they were imagining he was like a kid like them, you know, in some other school in London, probably. You know, they. It's so funny. Was that Pythagoras, or who was it that uh, was reputed to have um, discovered some principle in mathematics or physics when his body displaced the bathwater in the tub and he jumped out and ran through the streets naked shouting, Eureka, I've found it. Yeah, maybe it was him, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there is some Pythagoras cup or something. Might have been him. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, to be honest, uh, like I'm so not sciencey. It's really right. funny we're yeah. talking like this, but um, uh, well, yeah. Anyway, so you know, in the end of the day, that I realised that that wasn't it either for me. That wasn't where I was going. So it's like I, I feel like I tried to fit myself into all these different boxes, and I, I just didn't fit basically. And it was like, well, okay. So th- this is when I started to get the the spiritual kind of direction coming in and mm. it's actually towards the end of my when I was acting I did a sh- I did a show with uh, it was a Shakespeare comedy of errors mm-hmm. and I was Antipholus of uh, Ephesus I think and there's an Antipholus of Syracuse so we're like twins mm. and everyone mistakes us for each other that's how the comedy sort of happens anyway he used to go off on a Wednesday I think it was after rehearsals and he used to go off very mysteriously and I said where are you where do you go and he wouldn't tell me mm-hmm. and I actually followed him once and it ended up being this Gnostic group ah. yeah it was a Gnostic group um sort of based sort of Spanish based thing mm-hmm. so that was my first kind of step into this um I didn't last very long in that group because I you know <laughs> I ask a lot of questions and I I'm not particularly reverent, you know, I'm not like, I'm right, like right. I've always been like, okay, I wouldn't, I need to know this. Um, so, uh, yeah, <laughs> I kind of get into trouble. It's a good way to uh, be, actually. I, I think so, yeah. And then uh, after that, I was, I was in the Gurdjieff group. Mm-hmm. I think it overlapped a bit. Um, so that, I mean, that was where my sort of first things first started to open up for me. And, so I was reading some of his books, going to this group. Um, Were you trying to do that self-remembering thing that, that, that those people are repeating? Yeah. You know, like, keep checking in, am I here? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that kind of stuff, yeah. And, you know, I mean, I don't know if you know much about it. There's some very strange stuff goes on in those groups. You know, people speak very slowly. Well, yeah, you know, my first, my, I was a student of Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, and he said that when he first came to England, he met a bunch of Gurdjieff people back in the 60s, and they were all speaking like that. And, yeah. you know, and he said, you know, well, wh- why are you talking like that? And they said, well, we're trying to remember the self. And he said, well, why should you not be able to speak properly? And, <laughs> and they said, well, you know, we were taught to sort of keep checking in and yeah. remembering. So he said, no, 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 no. He said, said self-realization is like taking a shower. You take a shower in the morning, you're clean, you totally forget about it, and it's just there without the, throughout the day. Thinking about it doesn't help to retain it. Forgetting about it doesn't cause you to lose it. It's just not on the basis of any kind mm-hmm. of active attention like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think there's, well, it's like all these things, you know, when the teacher dies, you've got, you know, you've got people interpreting the teaching and, 
I think there's a lot of like a lot of judgment actually. You know, I used to see you used to do the movements as well. You know, the movements are fantastic. I love the movements, but you see people getting them wrong, and then they like be chastising themselves for getting it wrong. And it's like you know, this is just judging yourself, you know, and then judging yourself for judging yourself and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. So I, you know, again, I I got into trouble again. You know, <laughs> um, had a bit of an altercation with a senior person. Um, but I have to say, you know, I've got a lot. I I think Gurdjieff the man was a bit of a genius. I think he was so mischievous. Mm. And and what my first big kind of awakening, I guess you call it, was. Have you ever read that book? That massive book he wrote, uh, Beelzebub's Tales to His Grandson. No. It's this massive tome. You know, it's like mm. a thousand and something pages, and it's it's so wildly crazy. I mean, it's just. It's just so out there, you know, these huge words, Hector Parapashinoch, and you know, I can't remember. <laughs> and, it, and it's just so fantastical, uh, but, but delivered in a kind of this is the way it is sort of mm. thing. It, you know, for someone like me, just continually trying to get my head around it. But it's just so out there that you just can't, you just can't get your head around it. So in the end, it, it, just, it just breaks, you know, the whole thing just breaks. Uh. And then it's like, ah. <laughs> Yeah, so that's the first time when I really sort of realized that there's a presence here. There's a knowing here that's knowing these thoughts. That's knowing these thoughts equally as the sound of this voice, as the colors of Rick on a screen. You know, there's a knowing and, it, and all those attributes are coming and going, shifting and changing. Whereas this knowing is just shining always. There it is. So that, I mean, that was just like a bombshell, you know. And uh, I remember my my older brother actually came round. Uh, I was staying at my grandpa's place. My grandpa, he, he was, wasn't very well and he just moved into a home. And I was basically living in his old house, ripping it apart, like taking out the carpets, stripping the walls. I was literally, you know, I was in an environment where I was ripping everything out. And funny enough, that's exactly what I was doing in the evening. I was just sitting, reading books, spiritual books, and this massive Gurdjieff book, and just kind of ripping everything out internally, mm. in you know, in the mind as well somehow. Interesting. Yeah, and my brother came round to see me, and I just, I just pulled it, bent his ear off like a whole night talking about this incredible discovery. Something, something knows thoughts. You know, mm. you're not thoughts. There's something before thoughts. There's knowing thoughts. And he's like, <laughs> what's happened to my brother? You know? Yeah, you on drugs, buddy? <laughs> yeah, and I said to him, you know, my life has changed. This, my life from now on, my life has changed. You know, I just knew it. it this was, this discovery was the beginning of something completely different. I still hadn't found non-duality by this point, but... But you were onto something. I knew I was onto something, but it felt incomplete. Because, yes... Ah, someone just told us it was Archimedes who was the one in the bathtub. Archimedes! Yeah, yeah. Of course. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Serge. <laughs> Thank you, Serge. Yeah, it was Serge that told us. Yeah, so... Yeah. Oh, I can't remember what I now. I'm so. I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, you were. Um, well, you were onto something. You realized. I was onto, that, exactly. Yeah, I was you realized that there was this presence. You hadn't quite glommed onto dark, um, non-duality yet, but you, yeah, there was a crack in the in the cosmic egg. There was a egg. crack. That's it. That's right. 
Um, so yeah, what I, of course, what you know, what what happens because it's you know life as as it is starts to kind of creep back in again, doesn't it? And you know this discovery suddenly is is less clear than it was, or you rediscover it again and you rediscover it again. And then also I. I think I just felt like there's just something else here because I could still feel that incompleteness, that sense of more, you know. But I think it's really important this point because I think a lot of people stop there. They get they get into this awareness thing, and then they 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 kind of they think that's it, and they think, oh, I've just I've woken up. There's this awareness here, and it's this like, is, well, this is, a this sticking is like point this is like first step on the ladder, I mean, you know. Yeah, I mean, if you've watched many of my interviews, you'll realize that um, there's a kind of a perennial theme with these, with me, which is that, well, it's the old Zen saying, that beginner's mind, and as, as Adyashanti says, I, I, I consider myself to always be a beginner. So Absolutely. I don't think there, personally, I haven't yet seen or come to understand how there could be a final step. It seems like there's yeah. always, and I mean, there's uh, there's a dimension of life that doesn't change, but then one lives, and in the living, there can be ever fresh clarity, realization, yeah. depth, whatever. I totally agree with that. I'm, when I say first step, I mean, I mean, you know, it's not. This is just the beginning of a journey. It's not the end. Yeah. Know? And what what I sort of later began to see and, you know, became part of how I share this message is that people actually get fixated on that and it becomes a concept, becomes another concept without even realizing it. They're now conceptualizing awareness and using it as a way of stepping out of life and kind of hiding from the kind of challenge and the messiness of what life offers. So it can actually become a bit of a false refuge as well. Yeah, I heard you comment in one of your other interviews of, you know, going to non-duality meetings and seeing these people sitting in the back row who were sort of checked out, you know, I mean, they'd, yeah. they'd gotten into a disassociative kind of state from, yeah. you know, dwelling on it this way without, you know, continuing to evolve. Or yeah, well, that, that's a good point to make right now because, you know, this when I did discover non-duality, because I was looking around now. I mean, I've got a voracious mind, you know. When I when I get my teeth into something, I like I'll I'll go one hundred percent, you know. And so, sooner or later, I I came across non-duality, and um, you know. So, well, I was hearing these slogans, you know, like nothing to do, there's nowhere to go, there's nothing to get, mm. and uh, you know, I like, was people really telling me this stuff, like you know, really believing it. And yeah, I could see that they was they were far from in a in a place where the you know it's like it's like having found that that kind of fulfillment. Do you know what I mean? This, well, yeah, this, I mean, what was driving me on was there's something un, there's un, this is unfulfilling. Yeah, and I and my take on it is that it's, they've glommed onto a concept, you know, and they've they've gotten good at speaking those kinds of words, but. You know, when you contrast what they're actually living and experiencing. That's what I mean, exactly. Yeah, with, with what's possible, then it's kind of sad in exactly. a way. <laughs> yeah, it's very sad. and But of course, you know, it's totally ironic as well. The reason I brought that in was because I think the people that you were just mentioning that sometimes at the back of the road there, I mean, this, these are the people that sometimes tell you this stuff. 
And it's it's like they've got stuck in a rut here because there's, they're telling themselves there's nothing to do. But what they're actually doing is they're suppressing a natural yearning to explore with the belief that there's nothing to do. So they're actually doing, doing nothing. You know, without even realizing it, they're actually yeah. completely contradicting themselves. I think if we analyze why they say that, it's sort of, it's a kind of a misappropriation of a different level of experience, which they exactly. probably, probably haven't attained, but there's this, there is a level on which there's nothing to do and nothing, exactly. that, nothing that could be done because there's it's no true. doer and so on and so forth. But if that's not the level on which you're living, there's a saying in the Gita, which is, uh, you know, the Dharma of another brings danger. You know, it's not your Dharma, it's not your experience. And even if it were your experience, on some level there's nothing to do, but on other levels there's plenty to do, and you're going to be doing it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Beautiful. And I would totally agree. I mean, all those phrases, it's all true. Of course it's true. But, you know, exactly like you say, if, if it's not true for you, then maybe there is something to explore. And I think that's why what I try to bring with the, the way I speak about this is to, you can come in at it anywhere. You can come in at it at any level. So, you know, I, I could be speaking to someone and, and just someone who's never heard of any of this stuff. And you're just getting them to see that, that there's something here that's knowing thought. I mean, just something little like that can be really profound for someone who's never even looked into that. And then for someone else, it might be a completely different way of speaking. And, and there's no qualm, there's no worries about contradicting yourself. Because, you know, it's right for particular people at particular times. That's just the way it is. So, yeah, there's nothing to do. It's, it's true. But That's an important maybe, point. I, I interviewed this uh, wonderful gentleman named Sri M a couple of days ago. And he was saying about the trickiness of being a teacher in the sense that you might be talking to a hundred people and yet the people in the room are at all different levels yeah. of understanding and, and development. And it's, it's sort of an art learning to speak in a way that's appropriate to all those people. But he said to really get deeply into something, you actually really need to have a one-on-one -on -one because then you can kind of tune right into where that person exactly. is at and what they need. That's exactly what I do. Yeah. I, have, I, I usually have a introduction will be on a group basis so it'll just be a kind of guided meditation type thing just bringing people into that place mm -hmm. just easing in softening into being and then from there i just i invite anyone who wants to come up to come up and then it's like a one-on-one -on -one with with an audience right so it's, it's great actually because it having the audience it heightens the one-on-ones so, it does. Anything it creates a anything, sort of an ambiance or a, uh, yeah. a spiritual field, so to, so to speak. Yeah, and it kind of amplifies whatever the yeah. issue is. You know? So yeah, I, so I realized there was more, so I, I wanted to explore more, so I, I started doing that. And I was living in, I don't know if you know London, in North London, Kentish Town. I had a flat in Kentish Town, which way. is quite close to Hampstead. And Hampstead mm -hmm. is where anyone really who comes the UK does non-duality meetings so yeah I was walking over to Heath like all the time you know going to see different anyone who stepped foot in the country basically I was there you know I was yeah. like lapping it up 
My only experience in London, this is just a funny story, I was, I was on my way from Keele University where I had helped to start a teacher training course for TM teachers and I was going back to Switzerland and I spent the night in London in the TM center there and I was meditating in the morning and I, coming out of meditation I looked over and I saw this button on the table next to me and I thought I wonder what that does and I pushed it and this fire alarm went off <laughs> and the guy who was like running the center totally lost his cool and was screaming and yelling we can't get this thing to stop once you start it why did you do that you son of a bitch you know? <laughs> that was my experience of London <laughs> well, at least they didn't. Ch- my my partner, she she did that on a she was on a massage course, and they tried to charge her two hundred quid, for <laughs> setting off the fire alarm. <laughs> she left the course. That's she funny. Was disgusted. Yeah. Anyway, we're having a very informal interview, as you can tell here, <laughs> little stories. But sorry to interrupt. You continue. Yeah. So you know, I started exploring different teachers, different books, different teaching in the non-duality sort of sphere. Go around and um, see Tony Parsons and Rupert Spira and Jeff Foster yeah, and all those guys. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I actually, actually, I didn't see Jeff very much. Mm-hmm. I saw Tony a few times at the beginning, and then I just found myself sort of looking elsewhere. And, uh, yeah, and Marnie. She was another one. Good money, yeah. And then Rupert. And it, you see, the great thing, Roger Linden as well, he lived mm-hmm. quite near me. But Armani and Rupert, they were great because they, they became friends, you know, and, it, and that to me is so important. Yeah. Because you, it, all the bullshit just goes out the window, you know. They just, it's nothing to do with any kind of pretensions or, you know, all that crap, which is gone, you know. And I, I think that's such a gift that someone in that position can give is to just be a friend. We're just friends. <laughs> it's really, really beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, I remember going to see Rupert. This is probably 10, 10 odd years ago. He used, to, he used to be upstairs in this little back room in Colette House. And I remember going once, and I must have been three people. Mm. And I just remember we were sitting there. There's this tube train, just to keep the tube lines just behind the window, just tube going, and the light just getting darker and darker, and so nobody could be bothered to put the light on. It was just three of us and Rupert sitting there in his dark room. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like, yeah, it's amazing. He's so popular now; it's wonderful. Really. Yeah, and rightfully so. He's absolutely. He's really he's, clear and a very sweet guy, and like you say, unpretentious. Just yeah, a genuine lovely. human being. And his wife, too, is delightful. Yeah, Ellen, beautiful, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'd love to catch up with him again soon, but... I'll be seeing yeah. him in a week and a half. Oh, of, say hi, f- yeah, hi well, for me. Yeah, I will, the Sand Conference. <laughs> Great, oh, yeah. Yeah, well, since I'd moved down to Totnes, I sort of don't see anyone anymore. We're just kind of living in the middle of nowhere and just disconnected yeah. from that bit. Yeah, so uh, from from exploring all those things, you know, then the other part of it started to open up. And I think the way, how do we talk about this? I I seem to have got into this pattern. I'm writing, actually, I'm writing a book at the moment. And there's this way in that I've sort of used is, first of all, common sense. What does common sense say? So going back to the awareness things, the common sense says, you know, you're a person, 
physical person, you've got a name, a gender, and all the rest of it, you know. And you've got your past and your future to come, and past memories and all that kind of stuff. And that's what you are, right? Simple. That's common sense. Yeah, easy. And yet, if you if you just probe that a little bit further, you say, well, you know, what are you most essentially are? Where's that? And most people wouldn't say, well, it's in your legs. You know, if you if you lost your legs, you wouldn't you'd still feel like you were you somehow, you know? Mm. So most people kind of end up up here. Like what I most essentially are is up here looking through two eyes. Reminds me of the Cat Stevens song, you know? Which one? Yeah, I'm Moonshadow. Moon if Shadow. I ever lost my legs. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know he'd written a song about losing his legs. Oh, yeah. Check it out, Moonshadow, Cat I Stevens. Yeah, I will, Moonshadow. That's the kind of common sense thing, but then you just start digging a little bit beneath that, and you think, well, let's take the body. You know, as the body a baby is born. You know, I've got two kids, and seeing them growing in the well, I didn't see them growing in the womb, but seeing the womb growing, and then the, the scanning pictures. You know, all these incredibly intricate structures being grown. You know, nobody does that. That's just happening. You don't design the intricate structures of the lungs and stuff. I mean, thank God, you know, yeah. <laughs> it all just happens. And you don't do it, but some, some incredible intelligence is exactly. involved there. But you see the same thing, you know, the skin growing, the nails growing, the, the hair growing, everything, you know, it's all, it's all happening, the heart is beating, the breath. And yet, you know, when we come down to it, out, out of all these sort of billions of processes, I don't know, trillions of processes, God knows how many processes, there's one that we say, oh, no, well, I'm doing that, at least one anyway, which is thinking. I'm doing thinking. I am thinking. And it's interesting that. But can you find the function that does thinking? Well, that's an interesting question. I mean, there's this whole free will issue. Obviously, there are certain things that we don't do. We don't beat our heart. We don't. We don't do a lot of, we don't run our liver or anything like that, but we, we do seem to be able to raise our hand or not raise our hand or speak or not speak. You know, and physiologists talk about the, what is it, the autonomic and the sympathetic and parasympathetic yeah. nervous systems or something. So, and a lot of people try to argue that the things that we seem to have control over are actually just as automatic and beyond our control as the heartbeat and the liver function. So, I mean, what's your take on that whole deal? Well, my take ultimately is to go right beyond all of that. Mm -hmm. But maybe we'll come to that. I'm just trying to sort of walk in because it, it certainly feels like you choose thoughts. But then if you look for some whatever it is that's choosing the thought, all you ever find is another thought. So what's choosing that thought? You, you just keep finding another thought. So the, the thought is just arising. It's literally just the right, try and find now, find a function, some function at doing thinking. If you have a good look, it's just, you just find another thought. Where does that come from? All I'm doing now is just trying to, trying to loosen up the, the sort of conclusion of common sense. And then what some people then do is they grab hold of science, like right, science will help me out here. But then of course, you know, our, our prevailing sort of materialist science will actually confirm that there isn't anyone doing that. There's no, you know, it's a kind of neurophysiological system. 
But just to play devil's advocate for a second, let's say yeah. somebody's listening to this interview and they feel like, all right, well, I made the choice to listen to this interview and you guys are talking about this. Is there anyone doing it? So right now I'm going to make the choice to leave this interview and go out for a walk. It's, it's yeah. my, or maybe I'll sit, decide to stay here, but either way, it's my choice. And so there is, okay. I perceive that there is a somebody who, although I can't quite put my finger on what it is, but there is something that uh, enables me to choose to do this or that. Yeah, so the thought that arises, I'm going to press stop on this interview and I'm going to go and walk my dog. There's a thought arising. Where does it come from? Yeah, where does it come? It's the same question. I mean, it doesn't matter what the thought is. I'm going to raise my hand. Yeah, so where did the thought come? I'm going to raise my hand. These are just ways of loosening up the certitudes that we have. And if you try and grab hold of science to back your case, it does the opposite. Science is basically saying that, that we're sort of an organic machine, basically. That's just, it's like a software program that's just updating. It's got its hardwired DNA structure. Without, and that comes from your parents. You didn't choose your parents either. And, and it's sculpted by environment and you don't choose that. So it's like the whole thing is just an upgrading system. This is what science would say. So, I mean, that's actually quite useful for people on this path because it starts to, like I was saying, just loosen things up a bit. But when I really sort of got that, it, it still felt like, well, no, I, whatever's here, there's, there's a freedom here. There is a freedom here that that doesn't speak to. So that's when I, you know, we go into this first-hand experiencing. This is the key. This is the the sort of beautiful way into exploring this whole area of non-duality spirituality first-hand direct actual experience so we can do that like we were speaking earlier about realizing that sounds and sensations and thoughts and feelings are all moving and changing and shifting but this knowing of that is always present here it is always shining so that's the, the kind of key that I then took into this next step of exploring. So that's, you could say we've looked at the subject, the me, and we've seen that what we thought was a subject is actually thoughts, feelings and sensations that are arising. So the real ultimate subject is this knowing, if you like, this presence. So now what I, I then like to do is turn it around. So now let's look at the object because this is this is the sort of contradiction that I found myself in okay I'm this presence I can't find where it begins or ends even and yet this world still feels like it's outside so like you know this computer and you know Rick's over there in America and we're having this conversation so all of that stuff is still there so we get this kind of weird contradiction and that's why I think for me it felt incomplete so then we look at the, the, at the object, we turn, well, let's really look at this object. What is this? And it, I think this is where most people find it most challenging, actually, because what we're doing is we're seeing that all we ever experience is like a virtual reality. And this, again, I don't, if I say that sometimes people go, whoa, whoa, you know, <laughs> whoa. So we walk in gently. So common sense says 
like we were just saying, you're, you're what you most essentially are is behind here, looking through eyes at the world. But just to look at that for a second, what we're believing there is that these eyes are windows. And that there's a sort of entity behind them looking through windows at what's out there. But then you, you could really play devil's advocate with that. You say, well, how is this little entity in the head? How is that seeing? If it's just looking through windows, you get into this like infinite regress. You need, you need a little entity inside the head of the little entity that looks through its eyes, it looks through these eyes. <laughs> and you just keep going back. It, it, just doesn't, it just doesn't make sense. What if you do it this way? What if you say, all right, what you are is consciousness. And there's a, 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 I'll just you know state it this way, and you can rebut it. But there's a there's a physical apparatus, a, a, a mechanics of perception involving senses and so on, and then there are objects of experience, objects of the senses. And so you have a threefold structure: you have perceiver consciousness, mechanics of perception, and objects of perception. The perceiver obviously can't perceive himself because to do so he'd have to be an object and step apart from himself and that, that there you get the infinite regress. But um, he, so to speak, I'm saying he, it's not a he, can perceive other things. They can fall, like images falling on a movie screen, screen can't perceive itself, but images can fall on the screen and, and give rise to experience. Does that sort of fit with what you're saying or would you like not to really. refute I, that? So that, that's, a, that's a nice model. And you know, if that works for you, go for it. But I found that that kind of model didn't work for me. There's still a feeling of separateness that that evokes. And actually, in a way, the screen it does know itself. It does know itself. You can get down to that screen knowing itself. You can, but isn't, is it, isn't it different than the way you know a, a cup or something? Because the screen is itself. It can't sort of become two, yeah. two things in order to know itself. Well, yeah, but where this lead, this is leading is that there is no cup. There's only itself. Uh -huh. That's where we're going. So that which appears to be a cup and a pen and a tree yeah, and so on. Yeah, it's just It's all just consciousness. consciousness. Yeah, yeah. It's, that's where this leading. So we leave that common sense thing behind. And this is really mind-blowing because then people go into, like, let's do science again like we did before. Mm -hmm. And what, what you start to realize is what the scientific position is, which nobody really realizes, I don't think people really think about it, is is that, okay, all this sensory data from the outside is being picked up and coming into the physical system. But it's all it's all being fed into the brain and the brain is dark and it is no sound or light in a brain. So it's not, you know, I think we have this idea that it's like this, we're streaming all this light into the head and just into... But it's not true. It's like the brain is interpreting it. Yeah, it's all, it's just electric electrical signals, electrochemical signals feeding into the brain, where this utter fucking miracle happens, where this explosion of this theater, this this cinematic, rich experience happens. So, I mean, this is mind-boggling because what it means is. That what you're seeing now, everyone who's watching this, wherever they are in the world, what they're seeing now is not a real physical reality. It's a kind of collection of perceptions. And if, if we're sticking with, with the scientific view, 
it's a projection of being created by the brain in the mind. Yeah, now here's an interesting question, not to throw you off track, but let's say you ha you're, you're looking at a tree, and there's also a bird yeah. looking at the tree, and there's a dog looking at the tree, and a, maybe a, a squirrel or something. And each of them, obviously, if we think about it, is seeing a very different tree because they have very different perceptual apparatus and ways of interpreting yeah. what they perceive. So yeah. who sees the who real, sees the, who sees the real, the real tree? tree? And you could have a thousand people looking at the tree, and they're all seeing slightly differently. Yeah, I like it. So what is the tree exactly if no one actually sees it as it is? Does it yeah. have a, a reality that sort of stands alone in and of itself that is perfect and, and everybody has some kind of degree of, of appreciation of that but not the actual thing? Yeah, right. So that's a philosophical question because nobody can actually answer that. So this is the, this is the wonderful thing. So nobody can step outside of their first person experience to objectively experience a material world out there to say what that tree actually is and i mean that's an extraordinary thing to realize because what you're ba what it's basically saying is that the the concept of reality that we share conventionally is a concept it's a philosophy it's not a, a kind of actual experience and this is really like mind blowing. And yet we don't that. want to say that we're all each creating our own reality because there's a there's an agreement to a certain extent between all the different realities. The squirrel yeah. obviously sees some sort of tree, the same as we do. He climbs it. We watch it. The bird can fly up and land in it. So they're all identifying an object that's, that's apparently there. And and we could die, and they could still be engaging with the tree. So there's there's some sort of existence to the tree that seems to be independent of anyone's perception of it. Yeah. So we we can get to that because these are big questions. So I just want to pause here at the moment because I think it's really something that certainly in my kind of journey was really profound. So, for example, like if you're sit, sitting watching this now, or like for us now, as you sort of move your head around like this, it seems completely obvious that you're moving your head around. Mm -hmm. right? But what we're saying is that because your experience is virtual, it's being recreated, that's what you're experiencing is the movement of colours that gives an as-if impression. Even the little sort of clicks in your neck, if, I don't know, if you're walking down the street and you're feeling the, the sort of, tingling sensations in your feet and you feel your feet touching the ground and you look and around and you see people walking and your smells and the cars going by it's all being recreated out of perceptions i mean this is really really important to to kind of understand with this whole process i think Maybe in terms of distance like the distance for example like you look at a, a star trillions of kilometers away in the sky at night and seems that far away but you know your your brain isn't bigger than the universe you couldn't possibly house that distance inside your brain so it, it's an appearance it's the appearance of distance just like as i move my hand in and out of this screen now it looks like it gets closer and bigger and further away but from the point of view of your computer screen right now this just colors so i mean this is fundamental right because if, if you don't start to kind of feel into this then you'll always have this sense of separateness between 
the knowing presence and what's appearing. So I think that's, I was about to ask you, so what's the, what's the practical value of this philosophical yeah, exactly. discussion we're having? And, and you just sort yeah. of said it, that if you, yeah. if you can really feel into this, then you can kind of begin to sense the unity of exactly. things. Yeah. Exactly, because, because now look, I'm looking at my hand, right? So now we've been talking about computer screens and things, but this is true of my hand too. This is colors with sensation that create this experience. So your entire, your actual body and your thoughts, everything. So it's, it's all appearing. It's all like a perceptual cocktail, if you like. Yeah, so our conventional view is that's a representation of what's out there. But like we just said, that can never be experienced. So I'm not, we've got to be careful here because for me, this whole journey is about, it's not about replacing beliefs with new ones. It's, the op it's just about kind of unpicking things. So from, from there, we don't now come to the conclusion that there is no out there, but neither do we come to the conclusion. It's like you're not now shifting all your, what's the eggs into a different basket, if you like. We, we just don't know. So we're coming into this innocence, this childlike innocence. All we know is a direct experience, this, this right now. Now, a little while ago, you said, well, it looks like, you know, I'm looking at a cup or I'm looking at a tree, but really it's all consciousness interacting with itself. Yes, so um, that's where we're going. That needs some explanation. Yeah. yeah, so that's, that's where we go now. So now we've broken down the subject into pure knowing, consciousness, whatever word we use. Mm -hmm. And now we've broken down the object into this a kind of softening, into just a, a play of sensation, a play of thoughts, feelings, you know, like mind stuff, if you like. Well, the object is a mind stuff and thoughts and feelings as far as our perception of it is concerned. But what I was kind of getting at before is the object doesn't really depend, or does it really depend upon yeah, so our perception for its existence. Yeah, know, so the moon has been doing just fine even before there were human beings that could really perceive it. it, was, yeah. it, it no, it's, it's a great question, but yeah. the thing is, I think you'll see where I'm going. Okay. I don't want to jump in and answer that because like in the question itself, there's stuff in there. So by answering it, I'm kind of... So you're unfolding this as you go along. Yeah, I'm yeah. agreeing to the premise of the question. Okay. It's a bit like what we were saying earlier. So I could answer that, but it wouldn't be right, my answer, because it would be giving validity to certain assumptions in the question. So if we just now bring these seeming two together, yeah, so there's, there's this knowing presence and then there's this cocktail of perception. So what we can then do is maybe with eyes closed it might be easier but just take maybe a sound sound is sometimes the easiest thing to play with um maybe the sound of my voice or if there's some traffic nearby or a clock ticking or whatever and just we're going to go with direct experience so that means letting all of our assumptions all of them every single one just drop away so you don't even know what this is you have no idea what this sound is right now or, or where it is or when it's going to begin or end so that without any of those assumptions or predictions there's just sound spontaneously appearing now and it has this quality here it is 
spontaneously appearing. And it's being known by this presence. So the first question to look at here is, is there a gap between these seeming two? Now, if we go into our concepts, then suddenly I'm a person sitting here on a chair and the sound is a meter or half a meter away from me. And yeah, there's the gap. But if we come back into this first person experience again, now I, this consciousness, I can't say where it is. It's certainly not here between my eyes. That's a sensation. That's a sensation that is being experienced by this knowing presence. So this knowing that I can't point to and I can't say where it begins or ends, is there a gap between that and this spontaneously arising sound that I know nothing about? Where do I start my measurement? Do I start it here from between my eyes? That's a sensation. That's not where I presence am. So you, I mean, you try this, is, is there some kind of boundary between the two? Where does knowing end and sound begin? For me, I was playing with this stuff and then for some reason it just broke open and it became utterly clear that this knowing and this sound are indivisible. The knowing is being the sound. And you, we, can, we can play with that with all the different kind of sense doorways, if you like. You can play with sensation, you can play with, with uh, smell, taste, movement, the sense of movement. And yeah, even image, open eyes, colors, even colors. You can see that this the presence is knowing those colors, is being those colors. So in a sense, there's nothing looking. There's nothing looking. There's what is sort of shimmering, shining as it is. So it's this is the step from, from being that awareness to, to actually being what's happening, the experience itself. And you know, th we could call this experience, we could call this love because it's that coming together of seeming separate things. Seeing that, that it, it's only, well, it's, it's just what it is, wholeness, being what it is. Having, uh, are, you want to continue or should I ask a question? No, yeah, I'll go for it, yeah, ask um, a question. A couple of thoughts come to mind. One is, in terms of your own experience, when you're talking yeah. like this and leading people through a, uh, a logic like this, it's kind of lively in, in the experience, but is this, I'll just ask you personally first, I mean, is this sort of way of seeing things spontaneous living reality for you throughout the day and night, or is yeah, it so is something more that you kind of psych yourself into when you're thinking this way? Well, the way I see it, the being consciousness it can it kind of shape shifts in sort of generally three different ways it can come into being a focus as if it's a person and it can soften out as a sort of witnessing presence like we were just talking about like this stuff is happening and it's being observed or it can go into being the whole experience 
So that movement can always yeah. shift and change. So, so the idea of trying to hold on to some particular state, it seems to just disappear. No, I'm not just saying hold on. I'm just saying. Yeah, you know, yeah. No, I like that, though. It's kind of the zoom lens analogy. You can zoom in, zoom out, according right. to the circumstances and the need. It's infinite. You could do what it wants, you know? Right. It's like all the doors are open. Why limit yourself? But then a second question is, yeah. you know how in the case of uh, near-death experiences, some materialists will say, well, it's just the brain getting deprived of oxygen, you know, and that's why you're seeing yeah. a, a tunnel of light and all that stuff. And similarly, some might, one might say, well, yeah, you're, you're sort of going through this pro analysis and you're, you're gaining a sense of oneness, but that's really just sort of a subjective experience. And is that, does that really correlate uh, or do, are you actually getting a, a kind of a peep into the oneness of, of reality as it is? Yeah, that's what it seems like, yeah. Yeah, okay. I don't want to get stuck here because, this, again, this is like another step. I know there are no steps, but... Mm -hmm. So you can realize what we're talking about here. And then, again, your life doesn't change. Or maybe it does initially. And there's a kind of, you know, like a honeymoon, whoa, you know, <laughs> wow, <laughs> wow. And then you start to see that, okay, the old patterns are still coming back, you know, so what was, and this can be a really hard place to be because it's like, what was all that about? These realizations have dropped in, but I'm still left as the same idiot I was, or you know, whatever it might be, you know, it's like, I'm still frustrated in the same ways and fall into the same patterns and are again you this is are you though or it, does this open exactly, up a, a kind of a exactly, dimension of fulfillment that you exactly know, right. that's what i'm talking about there is that fulfillment but the patterns still come back basically and people can get stuck there mm -hmm. so just like they can get stuck with the awareness they can get stuck here and then they start appealing to the nothing to do thing again <laughs> Yeah, and say, okay, I, I've seen it. I've seen it. There's nothing to do. It's, it's, and then they just carry on suffering, basically. So, so my invitation is, no, come on, let's keep going. Let's keep going. Let's not give up. You know, let's keep going. Yeah. And this is where, for me, the most interesting part begins. Because it, it's the psychological side. You know, it's like, it's almost like, for me, non-duality is the reverse of most other paths. You know, a lot of other paths, you get stuck into the, the psychology. You know, you start looking at your patterns and start, you know, doing all that stuff. And then the sort of hope is, you know, one day when I'm totally pure, I might realize wholeness or something. So what I love about non-duality, it just turns the whole thing around. And it says, no, you can realize what you are right now. It, it's, it's abundantly available always and forever. It always has been. And then the invitation is when you, when you start to realize that, the way I see it is you have the most extraordinarily powerful tool, if you like, to now really go deeply into all of that messy stuff because you know what you are. Well, I'll share a bit of my experience, but I'll tell you, if I'd have met what I've met without knowing what I am, God knows what would have happened. Yeah. Really, really. 
Here's an analogy I like to use for that, which is that let's say you have a handful of mud and you want to dissolve it, but you only have a cup of water. You throw the mud in the cup of water and it's just all mud. But if you have an ocean to throw it in, you throw it in the ocean and it just dissolves. So, yeah. so what you're saying is this, this gives you the capacity for processing stuff much more elegantly and efficiently than... Much more elegantly and efficiently. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. No question about it. No question about it. Yeah. And it inevitably does process, doesn't it? I mean, you know, once this opening takes place, the evolutionary process, if we want to call it that, continues, and it's like, all right, now it's time for some house cleaning. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so I... So maybe another image here. I've got this table I've drawn up for my book that I'm quite proud about. <laughs> and incidentally, we talked about you singing a song or two here or there, so if we get to a point in this discussion where you feel like taking a break and singing a song, particularly if it relates to what we're talking about, just let's do. Okay. Maybe now. Oh, yeah, okay. You, you all tuned up and ready to go? It would be, be a nice kind of Sidetrack, huh? Yeah, just get out of our heads for a minute, and if that's yeah. where we are. <laughs> I always love that, get out of our heads, you know. Because it's got such bad connotations, or, or it's seen as madness, but actually it's sanity in a sense. Mm -hmm. All hopes, all dreams, falling apart at the seams. It's the end of pretending to know Maybe is what ifs All become meaningless And this life-long quest Dissolving into emptiness Losing it all Losing it all Losing it all Again Those eyes Meet the mind it just falls to its knees and this heart breaks in love with all it creates no crap no grip it's all free to just be as it is And this heart sings is nothing and everything. Losing it all. Losing it all. 
playing drums quietly as you were doing that. I yeah. Used to, I used to play the drums. Ah. It's funny, there was one little line in there where you said, no grip. And uh, it reminded me of uh, an experience I had when I was a teenager where we were on LSD walking along in the middle of the night and the, the sun was rising or we walking down the street and this friend of mine said, you know, there's no grip. There's no grip. He just kept yeah. saying that. And it's like, because yeah. everything was sort of flowing and changing and all. And... Uh, I, I always thought if I ever talked to him again, I'd say, well, yeah, on that level, there's no grip, but there is a level which doesn't change, you know, which, which is stable yeah. <laughs> and which gives yeah. sort of, um, which gives coherence and, and a foundation to yeah. the, the ever-changing world. Yeah, so there's the paradox, isn't it? Yeah. There's the paradox. I like to put this, use the songs in, in the retreats, actually, yeah, so we do a lot of guided meditation you take things you go deeper into the mind so everything starts to loosen and open up and then sometimes i like to cheekily slip in a song you know so that kind of blows the heart open as well yeah it does it does it, it yeah. sort of creates a balance or... yeah yeah so i mean we would get into this so in the play of our life we we yeah we go through the experience we go through so, I mean, right from very young, when we, you know, we have we have this this fall. I call it. I like to call it the second birth. You know, it's like when you around sort of eighteen months, where you, I've seen it with my own children. It's like you kind of there's this magical world, <laughs> a bit like what we're describing in a sense, but you you actually don't have any concepts at all what I'm talking about is you still retain your concepts, but you see through them. So they're downgraded from beliefs to just useful playthings. Whereas as a, as a kid, you don't even have that. It's just experience. And it's this kind of like wondrousness, you know, and everyone's providing everything for you. So it's like a kind of magic world in a sense. And then there's this big fall, which is when we become a psychological self. So, you know, we start to take on the, the concepts of our culture and our environment and and we seem to lose this openness this sense of 
wholeness. You know, and I, I actually think, you know, I've seen it with my two boys, this kind of rage that we go through, you know, and the, mm, the, terrible the terrible twos. twos. Yeah, yeah I, th I think it's, it's like, like, what the fuck's happened? You know, it's like really going crazy. It's like absolutely mad, like what we've, what's been lost, this fall. And of course, most people don't, we don't understand that. So when we see you know, our little kid rolling around the floor going crazy, we, we kind of project forward to seeing a 16 year old kind of burning houses and, you know, <laughs> and we try and, we try and shut it down. But actually this is, this is rage that wants to express. And I think in a, in a sense, this is where it all begins because we, in losing wholeness in that sense, it, there can be a sense of inadequacy, like what, why has this happened to me? And then when we try and then suppress the rage that comes from it, it's like a confirmation. Oh, sorry, something's just happened. That's a good analysis. I'd never heard that before, but I th it makes a lot of sense to me. I bet you. You I still got you, me. You can still hear me. Okay? I hear you. Um, okay. I'll bet you that's what's really happening with kids at that age is they're just sort I think of so. reacting to the extreme shutting down that they have experienced considering yeah. and especially if you have the sort of more esoteric view that we come you know we're born into this life from some in-between state that's very unbounded and free and vast uh -huh. and and then we kind of come down into the earth plane and it's very dense and constricted and you know there must definitely be a reaction to that uh, frustration yeah absolutely i mean i think you know there are I mean, there is a way of maybe soothing that process, but I think it's inevitable. It doesn't matter how enlightened your parents are, you're, you're still going to have to go through that. Mm. And what I mean by that is, like I, with speaking my youngest, sometimes he's three now, but when he was two, sometimes he'd go into his, one of these rages for an hour and a half. And I would just sit close to him, make sure he didn't headbutt anything or, you know, <laughs> didn't hurt himself. And it was just amazing. After about an hour and a half, it would burn out. And then at one time, he just stopped. He'd look at me. Oh, Daddy, can I have a glass of water? <laughs> it's just like done. You know, it's gone. Interesting. It just needed to get it out. Yeah. And it, and if it's not, if it's suppressed and it's pushed down, then all that energy is stuck in there. You know. So what uh, what you did there sounds like the right thing to have done. Maybe you could elaborate on that as a father, as a parent. Well, yeah, I mean, I I think. Would you say you know, helping the child to feel secure and loved and and I wasn't doing anything. I was just, but your I was presence. just make, making, yeah, making sure that he didn't hurt himself because he's like yeah. rattling around on the floor, you know. And you're sitting, yeah, right and there. just holding it, just yeah. holding the space, basically. Yeah. Just hold, classic, holding the space. Whereas if kids get yelled at or abandoned or shut in a room by themselves yeah. or something at that stage, it yeah. could be quite the opposite um, of what they need. Yeah, and I, I mean, I, I don't mean this as a judgment on anyone because everyone just does the best that they can do, but. You know, maybe if if we knew that was what was going on, we maybe we'd look at it in a different way. It doesn't mean our child is going to become some kind of crazy monster when they're older. They're just working out this utter rage at what's happened. But as I say, you know, even if even if you have this, this even if it's managed in a, in a nice way, and I, I think there's certain natural ways that that's done anyway, like you know, peekaboo things like that these games are kind of universal all over the world it's like 
is the world still there when I open my eyes again? And you're just kind of testing it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and like every dad knows, you know, the kids love being chased. Right. <laughs> you know, and you, you pretend to be the ogre, you know, the baby thief, and they, they go, ah, and run off. <laughs> and it's like, it's like a way of playing with, you know, I'm not going to, no one's going to abduct me and run, run off with me. You know, it's okay. I, you know, being this separate little thing, it's okay. It's like, so it's fascinating all this yeah. stuff when you look into it. Yeah. But, but you know, like my experience, the, the conditioning comes in. It's, 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 the, it's the, the environmental, the, the sort of national, all that conditioning, it comes in. And so here we are deep down because of this primary kind of trauma, in a sense, feeling somehow not enough. And then the conditioning comes in and we hide it. We just want to hide it. We just want to build a defense structure around it, you know? And uh, so that, that's all the, you know, the beliefs we have and the, the, the kind of our looks, how, how beautiful or ugly we are, how clever, or stupid, we are, all that stuff and the roles we play, you know, mine was to try and be superior, to try and hide this kind of inner <laughs> discontent. But you see, this is where my little thing comes in, because it's never enough, Rick, is it? I mean, it's like you can't do that because underlying all of it is insecurity because you know you're playing a game. So we're always trying to escape that discomfort. And, and so how do we do that? We do it by craving things, you know, whether it's money, people, lovers, houses, spiritual enlightenment. <laughs> it's the same thing, craving or clinging on to, you know, what makes us feel safe or just plain resisting judging pushing people away whatever that we don't like or that threatens our sense of self or just just plain escaping you know shopping like compulsively yeah shopping. i guess one way of explaining it is that you know we crave fulfillment the mind wants happiness and you know the upanishads and scriptures like that say there's really one source of happiness and that's within the self is a, is a repository of all fulfillment uh, and that fulfillment we derive from external objects is a reflection of that but it's not that you know it's like the moon reflects the, the light of the sun and so we go chasing after all these reflections but they can never be adequate because they're not yeah. the primary source you know yeah. and if you can find the primary source then the whole firstly you find that happiness or to put it in simple terms but secondly uh, your whole relationship to objects changes and they no longer have the sort of compelling uh, quality that they once had because they've been eclipsed by something much brighter, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. Mm. Yeah, but of course, if you've not been exposed to those teachings or you don't know anything about those teachings, yeah. what you do is, what happened to me, you get stuck in a cycle. So you, maybe this is going to do it, right. and then maybe there's a temporary reprieve, but then you're back in discomfort as a, again yeah. as a separate me, and you just go round and round and round. And you know, I I have a friend who killed himself in his early twenties, and it's like just found no way out of that loop. And yeah. so every time you go round, you get a bit more depressed or a bit more disillusioned, and it, and then if you've got no other avenue out of that. I mean, where, where do you go? Maybe you just, like some people, just convince themselves that life's just a bit shit. <laughs> you know, life's just boring. Or like a friend of mine told me the other day, <laughs> so was it a kid 
grandchild or something was complaining that that they were bored and it, his dad's response was life's boring <laughs> like a, get used to it you know it's like, there's a saying life sucks then you die exactly <laughs> so you know maybe you convince yourself of that and it's just you know you just carry on going round and round the wheel you know you go and yeah. see the football game have a bit of a buzz on the weekend go back to your daily grind you know and, uh, and you think that's just what it is and you just wait till you die basically well i think the more people can hear that that's not all there is the better off we'll all be exactly and, i mean and, the, and all the great teachers throughout history have tried to tell people that that you know hey i've discovered something great here and uh, you, you got to ch check this out yeah. i mean putting it in contemporary terms because life is so much more than you realize and uh, it's a shame to just squander it on trifles when there's this vast you know ocean of fulfillment that's right right there as close as your nose you know yeah i was just thinking uh, when you were saying that you know this is this is where kind of religion is supposed to step in it's supposed to but yeah. of, but of course what all we what we know is it just becomes another part of the wheel yeah. the cycle you know, like you, you now you have a religious belief that's part of your identity. You well, know, I think they you, all started out with someone who actually was having that experience and, and talking about it, and then over the, yeah. the the centuries they get objectified and they lose the inner core, and then you know they're like a, a sort of a body that's lost its spirit. It's rotting. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's all there. It's all there in the you know, like you keep quoting the Upanishads, but it's all there in the New Testament. Yeah, you, know, you could sure. When you when you when you know what you're looking for, you can it you can right find it. You. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, of course. Here's a question that came in from Mark Peters in Santa Clara, California. Mark often sends in good questions. Um, this is related to what we were saying earlier. He said, "Why do you think that sight is the primary driver of the imagined sense of self? Yeah, the sense that I peer out from behind my eyes. Can you speculate as to why don't people experience that?" Self as existing primarily in the mouth, the nose, the ears, or fingers. Even the language around apprehension is almost exclusively sight-driven. Oh, now I see the truth. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely the stickiest sense. It's the that. most predominant. Yeah, it's the, it's the predominant sense, the one we rely on most of all. But, you know, for a blind person, maybe it would be hearing that it would... Maybe, yeah. maybe. It's be an interesting thing to explore, but certainly with the people I work with, seeing is always the, the catch. Yeah. It's like they, you know, they can really, even the sense of movement, smell, taste, yeah, it's all, it's all happening. It's like literally this presence is being that. And as soon as they open their eyes, it's like, <laughs> here I am again here looking out. But it, what I, what it would also adds to that conviction is is nice that it came up right now actually is where we're going because there's a there's a sort of density that these patterns and this these patterns that we're talking about we're coming to they sort of create a density physically which seems to bring a kind of center into the experience yeah and, it, and that married to the sort of perceptual field that seems focused here creates that conviction that we're in this little fragment of the experience exclusively. For example, I've just had an idea. I'm just pick this camera up. This room's a bit of a mess, but... Mm -hmm. Show it around. Here I go, show you around, right? Uh -huh. So look, what's happening? 
you're not moving. Right. But if if you were sitting in an IMAX cinema right now, and, you know, as that moves like that, it would be as if you were turning your head. Yeah. But you, the screen, you haven't moved. You haven't turned anywhere. You, you're just what you are, like what you always were. And all the colors dance to give the as if experience of moving your head. So actually the visual visual is exactly the same as all the other sort of sense doorways, if you like. We call it sense doorways, why not? Sure. Yeah. But yeah, I think this the stickiness is because we're, we're so used to interpreting in that way. And this density of the body that brings in a kind of extra conviction. So um, good question. Is it a couple little tidbits on that question. It, it is said that sight is the most predominant sense and that's why people close their eyes when they meditate. And also it's said that all the senses have subtler levels to them. Like you can have subtle visual perceptions or subtle auditory perceptions and so on. And um, it's said that we're more familiar with the subtler aspects of the sense of hearing, most of us, than we are with the subtler aspects of other senses. And that's what thoughts are. Thoughts are actually a sound, but a subtler aspect of, uh, using the very same sense that we, with which we hear external sounds, we hear thoughts, so to speak, uh, in right. the mind. We're picking up on a subtler aspect of the sense of hearing. And that's why you know, the use of a mantra is often used in different traditions for um, transcending the senses altogether, because we're already at a subtler level if we're thinking a thought, and we can pick it up from there and, and drop down all the way. Mm. Just a little tidbit. Nice. Um, here's nice a question for you from a student of yours. He says, James is my teacher, and of course I feel that he is the best. Um, <laughs> so this, this guy's going to get extra prasad or something. But, uh, <laughs> Who is that? Jit Jitendriya Bell Jitendriya. from Devon says, or asks, could you say something about the fine line between a healthy earnestness and longing to come home to one's true nature. Yeah, that's a great question. That's the first part of the question. And, or contrasting uh -huh. that with a willful, I am going to get this, damn it, yeah. you know, oh, <laughs> that kind of attitude. <laughs> yeah, so this is great. This is a great question. So this is where we're heading. So, so like, just like you, you've just been saying, Rick, the way out of this cycle, for me, the way we talk about it when we, in our meetings, is just stop just stop <laughs> stop the kind of endless wheel just stop and we just explore just as we've been doing throughout this interview first the subject then the object we just explore and then you know that leads us into this this starting to recognize the patterns that we play in life where these patterns are happening what what's going on and if you're in a relationship with kids it's great for <laughs> seeing your patterns christ yeah, all your buttons get pushed everything comes up and then what you can start to do is it's like you're tracing it back what's at the root of this and what you discover we go to the beach a lot around here which is quite close to the sea and, and it's a nice analogy you get these sea anemones you know and they're stuck to the rock and it's like this solid kind of splodge of stuff. And then these, all these tentacles kind of reaching out from there. And so I see these patterns are like those tentacles. And if you, re if you go back, and it, this is what actually uh, the, the kind of guided meditations can help with, you're sort of going into deeper layers of the mind. 
you, you can get back to these energetic knots in the mind. So this is where, you know, you discover that guilty, shameful, ah, <laughs> totally just deficient kind of child, or if you like, it, it's like an energetic holding somewhere in the, in the in the the mind, but also mirrored physically in the body. So you'll find it physically in the body. So this is where, like we were just saying, the beauty of what you've realized, this presence is just there, just shining, welcoming, if you like, we could use whatever words, lovingly welcoming that belief system, that energetic contraction, that holding to come home back into wholeness. It's just welcomed in. And I mean, that sounds easy to say, but often with so much resistance to even seeing that contractant, that contraction, because it's, it's like being found out, you know, it's like being revealed. So what happened for me was even after all the things we talked about, even after seeing that very clearly, doing this, just kind of seeing patterns, just dropping back, just for the love of it, dropping back deeper, coming to that, really facing that energetic contraction. And I, this is where that question comes in. I, I found myself at one point, this is, <laughs> sounds funny now, I, I used to actually visually see a shivering child, like almost like a, <laughs> kind of your inner child, so to speak. Yeah, like a fetus almost, like it's kind of a mm. you know, terrified thing. And uh, I knew it was like a, it was like the portal into the real depths. And um, I found myself one day just going like in the meditations voice going, show me, show me, show, so <laughs> show me. Sounds like that two year old there. <laughs> yeah, but it was, it was this really strong kind of like drive, you know, it was that drive that I'd had my whole life in the bizarrely it did show me and it, what it showed me it was it was that drive it was that drive that was in a way you know like newton's third law what you action reaction what you push pushes back and it was that drive like show me show me you know mm -hmm. and, it, and it showed me ah that's it that's what i'm still clinging on to that was what was energizing that knot hmm. And in seeing that, it's just like a softening, just, oh, just, this, uh, just an allowing for it to be however it wanted to be. And then the things opened up. Um, I, I could go further there. <laughs> I find there's an interesting balance that one learns to strike between earnestness and surrender. Patanjali in his Yoga Sutras talks about yogis with vehement intensity being those who realize most quickly. And yet, you know, that could lead a person to struggle and strain and be very unnatural and beat oneself over the head, you know, figuratively speaking. And yet, you know, the, the crowd that we were talking about earlier is, eh, there's nothing to do, you just sort of, they could sit around forever waiting for something to happen. Yeah. So there's, this, there's a kind of a, a balancing act that one, I, I say, 
develops into, and at least in my own experience, between, I mean, I'm, I'm just totally enthusiastic about this stuff. I, my wife will tell you, I, it's all I think about, I read books about yeah. it all the time, I interview yeah. people, I just love it, and yet I, I have no sense whatsoever, although I used to, of gotta have this or I'll die, you know, there's, just, there's not yeah. sort of a trying to break down the gates of heaven kind of... Um, well, that's the difference. And, yeah, it's, it's more like really enjoying the ride here and I love it and I'm you know, enjoying the scenery and totally eager and interested and yet at the same time just I'm not in the driver's seat and so yeah. I'm just relaxing and enjoying the ride. Yeah, <laughs> great. Be, you're you're in your zone. Yeah, if that's a good metaphor. Rick, you're in your zone. So there's a balance I, I, and people who are struggling and straining maybe lighten up a bit. You know, Go see a movie, play, listen to some music. People who are n doing nothing Better do something, you know. Read a book, get get focused, go to a satsang. Well, there, there's some well, kind of a mixture you can find that. that yeah, well, I would say I would say you have to keep struggling and straining until you fundamentally realize it's not getting you anywhere. Maybe that, yeah. Yeah, that, that's the way I see it. You can't you can't advise. <laughs> I mean, you can maybe you could suggest something, but we have to see it for ourselves. You know, we have to realize it for ourselves. I mean, I, I think people probably been telling me for years, James, you, you're so driven. It's like just lighten up, dude. <laughs> yeah, come on, I let, like just loosen up. But I couldn't hear it because I had to be driven in, in my mind. Yeah. You know, because drive was how I. I mean, do you, are you driven now, and you're in some way, shape, or form? Yeah, so I'm a bit like you, Rick. In that, you know, I love this stuff, and I love meeting people and holding meetings, retreats. I love yeah, music, playing songs. Yeah. yeah, and and actually, this in a way. This is where it leads, actually, because when, when you can drop, when, you, when you're not, I call it when you're not in, I call this cycle we're talking about, the, uh, uh, the cycle of reactivity. Mm -hmm. So when, you, when you're not functioning in that way anymore, when you're not living a reactive life, and most of us are living reactive lives, so everything we're doing, the motivation is to escape that discomfort often. And so when, when that's not an issue anymore, then it, you, you have the op opportunity to actually authentically act. So you, you're not driven by reactivity. And so then, you know, like the stuff you're doing, the stuff I'm doing, it, it can really blossom because it's not being restrained by these, uh, this kind of knot in the psyche. Yeah. It's not being done out of a sense of emptiness or Exactly. Or yeah. It's just celebration. Lack. Yeah, it's, it's, it's being done out of a sense of fullness and, and yeah, celebration, best word. Yeah, celebrating the joy, the wonder, joy and wonder of being. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I just want to add a little bit to what I, I just said then because um, I don't really talk about experiences very much because I think it can be so misleading and I, I certainly seen that in when I was really voraciously seeking and people would go on <laughs> talking forever about this their awakening experience. But I think it's worth just mentioning something here because when I saw through that, that pattern, what opened up was quite extraordinary. It was like people who might be going through this or have been through it, it might be nice for them to hear. It was just like demonic destruction on just devastation. The, what was? I, I get a lot of images when I'm sitting. And, I see. And, it, you know, just like, just like crazy demons kind of ripping people apart and planets and just like total, ah. utter devastation. Sounds like the and 11th almost, chapter of the Bhagavad Gita. Yeah. All oh, right. Okay. Oh, I must read it. <laughs> but, it, you know, like hell realms or something. Just yeah, like, 
it's almost like all the all the repressed stuff in the mind just going <laughs> mm -hmm. and this is what i mean about knowing what you are you you just it's like the the smiling buddha you just sit there and it all just does whatever it wants to do but i mean christ <laughs> it's full on that's what confronted then, him before his enlightenment actually the, the buddha you know all these sort of demons and wild stuff was coming right. at him and he was just sitting yeah. there like a rock you know i'm not gonna Absolutely. let this sway me yeah and, and going back to what we were saying earlier if you'd have done it the other way around, I mean, that would just be yeah, so you terrible. Have you the would, there's no way you could stay with that. You would just run off. You think you've gone mad and just check yourself into the nearest sanatorium. It's like, you know. It's, People do. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Good, good point. Hmm. Good point. So how do you support yourself? Are you like a full-time spiritual teacher or do you all have some kind of... I uh, am now, yeah. I am good. now. Got enough was, activity with that? Just about... Just, just about scraping it at the yeah. moment. You, you look well fed. You're not starving to death. <laughs> Got a few mouths to feed there. Yeah. No, it's it's good. It's going well. But you, just to finish that off, it's never finished. You know, this, this is an endless deepening, like we were saying earlier. So you know, even after that experience, actually, it did. After that, there was a kind of bit of a collective suffering thing you know tapping into some greater suffering people go through that and, they they feel like yeah. i've worked through my stuff now i seem to be processing the world you know something like that i don't know what's going what was going on there and then lots of biblical images like jesus on the cross you know hmm. and then the last layer for me was just fucking rage huh. like really vicious rage and i had this image of like a metal fist huge metal fist just like pounding were you expressing and it, and it the, overtly or were you just sort of processing it inwardly? no no i was just sitting i was just sitting there like just, yeah. it was all going on in the mind you know yeah. it, that was the message is why hast thou forsaken me it's like why the fuck you know mm. and then of course then that, that's that's when you everything just and it's just for me it was just light it was just nothing but light and cool and the sense of being, this is interesting as well, being embraced by the Father. Mm. So whether that's, you know, because in, in my own life, I sent, there's a sense of needing to be embraced, loved by my own Father. Mm. And then presence being the miracle that it is, it kind of mirrors what's needed somehow. I don't know, but that was, that was the kind of where it finished. Yeah. So this is interesting. I, I had kind of glossed over this during most of the interview because it sounded like you were just going to, you know, non-duality meetings and sort of working through this in your mind. But it sounds like you really went through an inner meditative um, cooking process, you know, in which you actually yeah. sat there and didn't get dissuaded by all the stuff that was coming up, but plowed, yeah. plowed through it, burned through it, yeah. and eventually broke through into the yeah. clear. Yeah, and all of that happened after the non-duality stuff you see right it sort so of lit a fuse that's why and... that's really important to make that point it's like you can see the the reality of experience the nature of reality and you keep going <laughs> it's like yeah then you then you go down into those those depths and and what was really beautiful actually after that had happened i could see that drive pattern 
occasionally sort of fade in, like trying to sort of reassert itself. And it was it's almost like a stick. You, I could see if you pick any of it, any of it up, any of the pattern up, you get the whole enchilada, as they say, you know, you get the knot and everything. And this is really interesting because it, it's like what happens is the love, the love of being what you are is so strong that you lose the taste for picking up the pattern. You just lose the taste. It's like sugar in your tea, you know, it's like, so you have, you have two lumps and you go down to one and then you go down to none and you get used to it. And it's like, yes, this is what I like. Mm -hmm. And someone you haven't seen for a while gives you a cup with two sugars in and you're like, ah, I don't, no, thank you. You just lose the taste for it. And I think that's, it, it's, so it comes from love. Not so in that this. metaphor, you're saying you lose the taste for old patterns of reacting the pattern, and, and yeah. behaving and so on and so forth. Yeah, yeah. And, 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 I'm, and the important thing is to say, I'm not saying it's like done. It's, all, it's a done deal. It's like, mm -hmm. that's it, end of story. I think that's a really big misnomer. There's always, who knows? I mean, it's an infinite mind, you know? Anything can happen. It's a, or it could pop up as anything, <laughs> you know, it could sure. be anything. Yeah. It's just another idea. Oh, it's done. Another idea. It's another idea. I've told this joke before my, my friend Francis Bennett likes to say how do you how do you know you're done did someone stick a fork in you <laughs> but I think this point you're making is is an interesting one in that what you're saying essentially in a nutshell to reiterate is that an awakening happens and then it's as if the vehicle within which that awakening happens the old vehicle is no longer quite adequate to support it and so the vehicle has to be cleaned and has to be transformed and has to be purged of all kinds of stuff that no longer belongs there in this more awakened state. So all that stuff has to get blown out and it can be pretty intense. Yeah, yeah. although the vehicle thing is, is a bit, it's a tricky one, isn't it? Because then we're back into like consciousness is in here. Yeah, but I mean, whatever this is, it's being, I understand what it's you being mean. lived yeah. through a nervous system, through a psyche, through a, a, mechan a human mechanism. It's, it's somehow, you know, is supporting this experience. I mean, consciousness exists irrespective of the mechanism. It's always existed. It's etern you know, eternal foundation of, of the universe. But if it's going to be a living reality, then it's, it's, it's a living reality through the through a person. <laughs> and when we talk about progress, we're not talking about consciousness progressing, we're talking about the capacity to live it progressing. Yeah. And that, yeah. that may necessitate a lot of transformation. Yeah. Yeah, I, I hear you completely. But where this has taken me is so Where do we go from there? Well, there's a question someone asked, but I don't want to take you off track. If you, uh... Yeah, I mean, I, it's similar to the questions you were saying before about, you know, lots of different, like the, the fox and the squirrel looking at the tree and the person looking at the tree. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I had that the classic question. If you, and if you really, I mean, it's an obvious question, really. If you're saying this is all an appearance and there's no, there's no kind of, experience of a material external reality that this is representing 
then you can get yourself into this kind of area where you know you're verging on solipsism now you're it's like there's only this you know so rick is just colors and sounds you know and so you know this this is like whoa you know <laughs> where's this going yeah. so i found myself looking into that really deeply and what, what it sort of seems to come down to is for me the guiding light is always direct experience okay mm -hmm. so we think direct experience is saying oh there's you know I, I, rick's just colors and 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 sounds like he hasn't got thoughts because i'm not directly experiencing them you see but what we're doing there is not direct experience we're still conceptualizing yeah we're still you know talking about rick's and james's and uh, even though we might think now they're not material things, they're kind of consciousness things, but we're still piecing up life into bits. Seems to me we're, we're also placing our perceptual angle at the center of the universe as, as yeah. if the existence of everything else depends upon whether or not we perceive it. Yeah, yeah. So we get, so then people talk, talk about this. Yeah, so let's just keep with that. Just, what I'm doing is taking thought right to the end here. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so instead of, it goes back to the similar question before when the guy was talking about the perceptual field. So if we're actually true to direct experience, then we're not cutting out things anymore. So what creates the seeming perceptual field? If we're not cutting those things out, there's not a this and a that placed here in relation to this what we're kind of dissolving that overlay what we're left with we could say is i don't know appearing colors appearing sounds sensations thoughts feelings so i'm not putting any labels on them as things please stay with me <laughs> or you could say even those things i've just said like colors sound those are labels yeah, so if we let go of those labels too, we could say there's like one appearance appearing, if you like. And even appearance is a label. Exactly, because <laughs> then, then you have to go to a, the concept of a, some, of a somewhere else right. where the appearance appears from and disappears too. So in the end, that falls apart. So all you're left with is pure consciousness, like being, mm -hmm. isness, whatever you want. And, w and when you're at that point, none of these questions can arise because you know the question of others can only arise out of the conviction of a, of a myself mm -hmm. so without any without stepping into any of those conceptualizations here you are what's left is you capital y you that is presence being mm -hmm. and there's a real beauty in that because even to call it presence of course is, is now to label it so then sure. you know that's already putting a circle around it so you're just left with just just like speechless in wonder at what is <sighs> now then we can dance we can if you want to put a model on it go for it enjoy it Put a model on it, like all the models we were just speaking about earlier. This is where it led for me. It's like, 
have go go for it big time come up with a really great model you know <laughs> just go for it and it happens that the con the conventional model that we live by has big flaws and the big flaws is, are that we immediately see ourselves as separate little units rather than this global consciousness so you know you could you could play with that you could try and introduce a completely new world model into the into a new paradigm you know just like you know we talk about the earth is flat the earth is spherical the sun moves around the earth no the earth moves around the sun these huge paradigm shifts mm -hmm. that have happened you know throughout history but they didn't happen overnight didn't happen mm -hmm. overnight people were absolutely. burned at the stake for trying to introduce them yeah. so these things take a while absolutely. Yeah. absolutely but the point is that i want to make is their models and that's beautiful and that's wonderful and we can play with that but as soon as we start to invest and that model gets upgraded to a belief then we're going to find ourselves back in the same position again yeah i think the safeguard is be true to your own experience and don't settle for beliefs and if something is presented that you aren't experiencing it experiencing take it as a hypothesis which means something yeah. something interesting to explore and, yeah. and you'll see whether it works out or not. But it's if you start hanging on believing things that you don't actually experience, then that that has created a whole lot of trouble over the years for humanity. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. That's going back to that that Chinese proverb. that's right at the start. You know, it's like you've got to involve me. Right. I have to see it. I have to see it. Yeah. And we should add that you know all the great religious leaders throughout history and spiritual leaders. They didn't care what you believed. They wanted you to experience what they were experiencing, not believe exactly. what they were saying. They wanted yeah. you to have the experience they were having. Yeah, and if you follow your actual experience right to the end, that's where you end up. Yeah. <laughs> and then, you know, to say anything about it is going in, as soon as I speak, I'm going into a model. Mm -hmm. And that's okay. That's, that's beautiful. You know, look at the conversation, the rich conversation we can have playing with these ideas and concepts and exchanging them and and you know the baby the baby the pre the pre second birth psychological self baby can't do that yeah. so it's like it's part of the game if you like part of the play part of the celebration let me hit you with another question that um, David Pinney from Wales sent in, and then maybe you could sing another song and then we'll wrap it up because um, we're getting down to about two hours or so. And, and if there's anything else you want to say that you haven't said, say it and you know say it also before you sing the song. But the, David asks or says, the phrase "awareness of awareness" always baffles me. I see it as potentially leading to an infinite regress. Do you see this phrase as having any useful content? Yeah, it, I think it's, it's useful for people to rest. You know, we were talking right at the beginning when you start to realize that there's a, there's a knowing or awareness here that's knowing sounds, sensations, thoughts. And what often happens is when we say be aware of the awareness, people start looking for something because that's what they're used to doing, looking for something. But of course, you'll never find it as something because it, it is always aware of the something. So it's actually, it's actually, funnily enough, the end, the cessation of that movement of looking 
and the the kind of resting the softening the easing and just it's kind of dropping into what's already here what you already are that you don't need to look out to see because you already are it so i actually prefer the word knowing because it's like knowing is what you are you are knowing knowing is the substance of what you are so it doesn't need something to step outside itself to look in on itself so there is no need for infinite regress because the substance of knowing is knowing <laughs> so it's knowing it's doing knowing <laughs> yeah. but, but this is the real tricky thing is because we're so conditioned into into focusing be I aware think... of awareness so let's focus into awareness it's it's the opposite it's defocus it's, it's a relaxation it's a in yes I think this also has pertinence to Ramana Maharshi's self-inquiry thing. A lot of people hear that and they start, all right, who am I? Where am I? You get this whole sort of inner searching thing, looking for a something. Whereas I think really what he might have advocated was just what you described, a sort of a a relaxing in where the subject-object split can just dissolve in in presence or in wholeness. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, beautiful. You want to take us out with another song? What'll it be? Ukulele or guitar? Yeah, let's let's mix it up. Let's have a bit of ukulele. Okay, dokie. <laughs> we won't we won't do a rendition of somewhere over the rainbow like we were doing before. Right. Yeah, before the interview, we were singing that Hawaiian guys uh, somewhere yeah. over the rainbow. So this is kind of related to the what we were just talking about in terms of um, going in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When your heart is breaking And your world is shaking When you want to run a million miles away When your ground is crumbling With every step you're stumbling When you've got
this whole interview it's a kind of like i feel like a we're old buddies or something we're having this yeah. you know kind of like casual conversation it's yeah. <laughs> great that's the funny thing with this stuff isn't it I, I mean you know i go all over the place and it's always familiar yeah yeah always let me wrap it up then so i've been speaking with james eaton apologies to those who uh, some, I noticed some message came in, hey, was this only 14 minutes long? So somebody didn't pick up the streaming again after it got interrupted. But the whole thing will be on, on the, the web soon and within a week or so um, with all the glitches edited out. If you want to get in touch with James, I'll be putting a page up for him on batgap.com, as I always do with links to his website and uh, whatever else he wants me to link to. In addition to like doing stuff locally there in the UK, do you do Skype sessions with people all over the world and stuff? I do actually, yeah. You can, through the website, I, you can find out about that and connect up. Okay, good. Yeah. People can do I that. I do meetings, um, like retreats in bit parts of Europe as well, if you're in Europe. I'm, I haven't been to the States yet, but mm -hmm. maybe someday, I don't know. Yeah. Following Rupert's footsteps, he'll be over here. <laughs> so... Next week, I will be interviewing one of the founders of Findhorn, or is it pronounced Findhorn? I think it's Findhorn. That's ah, I'm there next week. Are you? Are you going to talk yeah. up there or something? Yeah, I've got a three-day retreat. Oh, yeah. cool. I'm embarrassed to say the guy's name has slipped my mind at the moment, although I had it on the tip of my tongue. But anyway, I'll be interviewing him next week. After that, I'll be going off to the Science and Non-Duality Conference and um, doing a bunch of things with Adyashanti and others. And those will all be going up on BatGap as well. So thanks for listening or watching, and we'll see you next week. Thanks, James. Thanks. Talk to you later. Cheers.